The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Well, good morning. My name is Paul, and I'm one of the pastors here at Heritage, and we're very glad that you chose to worship with us today. Uh, we have been for quite some time in a series... Uh, in a series journeying through the book of Hebrews. And so I encourage you, if you brought a Bible this morning, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 12. You can open up there. Before we jump into the teaching and into the text, you know, as we're meeting outside, and again, it's a blessing. I was having a conversation with someone earlier. It's like, God is here. We can worship anywhere. Uh, that's one of the blessings about, uh, about uh, the New Covenant. It's, it's uh, a lot of the things we're learning even as in the book of Hebrews about the freedom we have to worship. And we don't have to be in Jerusalem on this mountain or anywhere else. We can worship God in spirit and truth wherever he, he, he has us. And at the same time, I, I also know that, that, that today, each year, is a bit of a challenge for us to, to move our things outside. And, and, and again, these are just one of the challenges we have every year of being mobile of being a church that meets in a mobile location, we have to set up and tear down every single week. And it's a blessing, and God has met us here for 14 years as a church, and he'll meet us as long as we meet here. I want to remind you, at last year at our annual meeting, I asked those of us that are covenant members at Heritage, and I've also shared this with the whole body, would you please, please join us in an open-handed, submissive prayer to God about whether or not he's calling us to a permanent facility? I seem to be having more and more of these conversations with people from Heritage all the time. Hey, are we going to get a building sometime? What's the thoughts of a building? And I want you to know, like, in a very humble and submissive way, we as elders have been asking God for direction, what that looks like for us to pursue a permanent building. I think that's something we would covet and we would love to have, but we want it to be in the center of God's will. Don't want to get ahead of God. Don't want to leg behind God. If he's calling us to a building, we believe he's going to open those doors for us, and I believe it's going to happen upon the prayers of the people. So I'm going to invite you to continue to join us, and this is just a great reminder of why a facility would be wonderful for about 194, 195 reasons now as we sit outside, why a facility would be wonderful. But would you, I sincerely want to implore you as the body, just join us in prayer as we, not trying to push any sort of an agenda, just really want to be in the center of God's will. And if he's moving us to a facility, we want to be able to do that in obedience and in faith and in trust that he'll provide if that's something he calls us to. Amen? All right, Hebrews 12. Let's go ahead and let's read. I'm going to begin in verse 12, and we're going to read verses 12 through verse 18. Last week, we, we concluded our teaching with verses 12 and 13. We're going to include that in our reading today. Uh, as, we're, as we're thumbing there, getting ready to start reading in verse 12, one of the features of Hebrews that, that we've seen throughout this book is that the author, uh, uh, there are warnings throughout the book. And in fact, there are five warnings that, that are dotted throughout the, the book of Hebrews. And today we begin, it's really verse 14 through the end of chapter 12, is considered the fifth and final warning passage. And so today is a warning passage beginning in verse 14. So just keep that in your mind. We're going to come back to that a little bit later. Let's begin. Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. And make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, so that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who said to his who sold his birthright for a single meal for you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessings he was rejected for he found no chance to repent 
though he sought it with tears. We're going we're gonna to work through our passage today, but I think because of the mention of, of Esau here, and him being used as sort of a, uh, an example of, of what not heeding the warning would look like, we, not, we need to remind ourselves before we jump into the teaching of the story of Esau. Esau, as you know, was the, the twin brother of Jacob, the father or the, the children of Isaac. And, and you go back in Genesis chapter 25 and all the way through, you know, really kind of through the middle part of Genesis up way, all the way to, to chapter 36, we can read of the story of Esau. But there's this very famous story that the author here is alluding to found in, in, in Genesis 25. Esau being the older brother of Jacob, born right before him. Jacob was grabbing onto his heel. But as the firstborn, Esau was granted special status and special rights. The birthright and the grand inheritance of his fathers was his. But we read in Genesis 25, verses 29 through 34. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau, his brother, came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to his brother Jacob, let me eat some of that that red stew for I'm exhausted. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die of what use is a birthright to me. Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. And Esau despised his birthright. This is a very well-known story in the Old Testament, reminding ourselves that the audience of Hebrews, they were Jewish believers. They were Jewish Christians. They would have known the Torah like the back of their hand. This would have been a story that was woven into their development and their education. And they would have known this story. Esau threw away great promises that was yet to be fulfilled. And he did so in order to satisfy a momentary craving or a momentary urge. I want you to hear that. Because that's what the author wants us to see this morning. Esau threw away great promise that was yet to be fulfilled. He did so in order to satisfy a momentary craving and urge. The future inheritance was far off while this pain that could be satisfied right now was immediate. And so he traded his future for a bowl of lentil soup. The author is telling the original audience and us today, don't trade your soul, don't trade your future for a bowl of soup. That's what he's telling his his audience. Don't lose sight of the big picture. Don't take your eyes off Jesus. Don't forfeit everything for a moment of pleasure or satisfaction. As we'll see as we unpack our text today, the, the, the call of the author to the audience both them then and us today, is that we run this race together. But the backdrop of this story is this stark warning that sometimes in our spiritual journeys, we forsake to look at the big picture and in pursuit of some temporary fleeting pleasure, we sell our soul for a bowl of soup. The author is saying, don't do that. He's warning the Hebrews and he's warning us. Would you pray with me? Oh God, as we unpack these verses and as we think about the Christian life, God, I do pray that you would be at work in our lives, in our minds today. God, I pray that as we study these verses that we would hear your voice being spoken into our lives. God, I pray that, you, that we would be uh, given a, a vision, a captivating vision today of what it means that we as the body of Christ are to run this race together this race that you have laid out before us. God, give us vision for what that looks like. God, bring conviction into our lives where maybe we are tempted to to forfeit the eternal promises we have in your Son and turn to temporary fleeting pleasures. God, bring us conviction and clarity. And God, additionally, 
as we mentioned a few moments ago, I do want to continue to ask that you would guide our church, God, as we seek uh, to grow into the church you've called us to be, God. We want to be faithful and obedient to what it is you reveal, God. We want to stay in the center of your will, God, if it be your will. God, and if you would bless us and entrust us with the resource of a, of a permanent facility one day, God, we ask that you would do that. God, help the leadership and the, the congregation to be unified. God, give us a, a vision for what moving forward in faithfulness looks like as a body. And God, if it be your will, would you please, would you bless us with a place to call home one of these days? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my all-time favorite sports stories isn't a super well-known story. Perhaps if you were around for the 92 Olympics, you remember this story. There's a guy named Derek Redman. He was a quarter mile or a 400-meter runner, one of the best in the world. He has the, I think he still has the British record, ran the fastest 400 ever for the UK. And uh, he had been a guy who had to battle through a ton of injuries, but after five surgeries, he finally found himself in the Olympic finals in Barcelona in 1992 in front of a packed crowd, 65,000 Olympic fans watching this race, this quarter-mile race. And uh, the story goes, Derek gets in the blocks, he's been training, preparing his whole life, overcoming injury, to be in this spot, to compete for his, his lifelong dream, to run in the Olympics. The gun sounds, he explodes, he's in lane five, he had the fastest qualifying time, he looks amazing, he comes around the first corner looking strong, his stride is strong, he begins down the back stretch and all of a sudden, pop, something in his leg explodes, he thought he was shot, he hits the ground in agonizing pain. The rest of the field runs ahead of him and they finish the race and everyone's looking at Derek laying on the track, cl clutching his hamstring in excruciating pain. He, he, he. He was laying there, and he's looking up, and he's seeing his competitors finish the race, and, and then he looks over, and he sees uh, these men with stretcher running to him. They're going to put him on a stretcher, and he's not going to have it. He didn't, he didn't train his whole life for this moment to be carted off the track on a stretcher, and so he gets up, and he tells them, no, there's no way he's going to get on that stretcher, and he begins to sort of half hobble, half skip down the back stretch and into the final turn. By this time, the attention of the entire audience is turned on to Derek. They're watching him hobble and finish, staying in lane five. And they're watching him as he's pushing. He's got pain stretched across his face. He can barely stand. Later on, he was asked about this, and here's what he said. He said, everything I'd worked for was finished. I hated everybody. I hated the world. I hated hamstrings. I hated it all. Then I felt a hand on my shoulder. And perhaps you've seen this incredible sight. On the second corner, about 150 meters from the finish line, some man emerges from the crowd, runs onto the track, pushing past security, shoving people off of him, and he reaches down and places a hand on the back of this injured runner. And the runner looks up and instantly recognizes his father. And he take the, the father takes his arms, his son's arm around his shoulder, and security, no one knows who this man is. They're, they're trying desperately to pull this man away from his son, and he'll have none of it. He keeps pushing them away and saying, no, no. And he looks to his son, and him and his son have this brief conversation to which his son says, Dad, I've got to finish. And his dad says, okay, we started your career together. We're going to finish this race together. Here's a picture, if you can see it, of these, this father and son running down the track together. It took him about three and a half minutes to finish the race, but they finished the race. Half the time, Derek had his face buried in his father's shoulder, weeping as his father shouldered the burden of his son, and together, side by side, they ran and finished the race. The crowd roared. No one remembers who won the Olympic medal that year. Everyone remembers the story of Derek and his father, Jim. It's a beautiful story. 
For several weeks, we've been talking about the life of faith as a race. This is not a metaphor I came up with. It's what the author has been using in, Gen- or in Hebrews chapter 12. It's been the central metaphor to describe this race that we run as followers of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, very well-known text. Let me read it to you. The author says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Today we're reminded that this race of faith that you and I are called to, it is not an individual sport. This race that we are called to run, we are to run it together. And that's the title of my sermon today, Run Together. Pastor Aaron said on Thursday as we were going over my sermon notes, he's like, it's a team sport. Like, yeah, the Christian life is a team sport. Much like Derek Redmond did not run alone on that day in 1992 in Barcelona, Spain, we too are running together. We're running the race of faith together. Look around, church. You don't run in isolation. We are a community running towards Jesus together. Sometimes we're the ones who are offering support like Jim, and sometimes we're the ones needing support like Derek. Either way, we run together. And so as we've journeyed through chapter 12, and we're kind of coming to the summation of this book, we've got about three or four weeks left in Hebrews. What have we learned? is the author spent nine and a half chapters painting this beautiful picture of, the, of how, how, how sufficient Jesus Christ is. The last several chapters, he's been wooing us into obedience, into running the race. And we've learned, as the book has been sharing with us for chapter after chapter, that there is, as we all know as followers of Jesus, there is great hope in Christ. This is the hope of the nations. There's no greater hope than we have in Jesus. And as we studied last week, sometimes in the midst of suffering, sometimes in those difficult seasons when we're laboring or when we're wounded or when we're isolated or struggling, sometimes we can lose sight of this great hope. Pain can impede Christians from seeing the good things that God has in store for us. Sin and struggle can weigh us down and it can sometimes trip us up from our pursuit of Jesus. But Christians have been called in this book and elsewhere to persevere. In light of these great promises that await us, the author has talked to us about how we can, we can look to those who have gone before us, those faithful saints who have finished the race, and, and we're reminded that the, the race is runnable and finishable. And that's this great crowd of witnesses, the, the 16 names mentioned in, in, in Hebrews 11. There are faithful men and women, thousands and millions of faithful men and women who have run the, the race of faith and have finished in faithfulness for the glory of God. We can do this, we can finish this race. But ultimately, we learned last week that we are to look to Jesus, who perfectly endured suffering en route to glory. He went from agony to glory. He is the trailblazer who has gone before us, making a way for us. And in fact, as we think about pain, last week our text mentioned the word discipline um, nine times. And, and that's not a word that we normally would associate depending on our perspective in life, will depend on how we view the word discipline. But the way our author framed it last week, as he mentioned it nine times, it was this this, this picture of pain as, as not punishment from an angry God. It's pain in our life is not designed by God to hurt us because the punishment for our sins was given to Christ. He is our atoning substitute. He died in our place. So the pain that we feel is not punishment because Christ was our punishment. So, so the author helped us see last week, whatever pain it is that we're feeling, whatever struggle it is we're going through, it is from God 
for our good. We can know that the discomfort and the pain and the struggle is designed by God for good purposes in our life. It's God's loving hand of discipline upon us. In fact, he says in verse 10 of our our chapter, chapter 12, that, that God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. And then he finishes with the amazing, the amazing word, the, f- the first two verses we read today, verses 12 and 13, with these motivating, encouraging, inspiring words. Therefore, in light of this grand truth, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what was lame may not be put out of joint but may be healed. And so that's where we left off last week, and and that leads us right into our text this week. And it's important for us to understand verse 13. We didn't have a chance to really look in depth at this last week. That word, make straight paths, that word straight is the Greek word orthos. And, And it means to make straight or level, think of an orthopedic surgeon. And it's the job of the Christian to, to make straight paths for those who run this race. Listen to what I read this week. The idea remains clear. The job of the Christian is to put the paths in better order so as to make the race easier for the lame. So that the lame may not be disabled or so that the, what is lame may not be put out of joint. The Christian race, as we run this race together, much like Jim who ran down to help his son, our job is to make the race better, to make the path straight, to come alongside the lame so we can finish the race together. The call of verse 13, as we get into the, the very practical application of verses 14 through 17, the call of verse 13 is to make a way for others. We, every consideration should be made to help everyone finish the race. We are to run together. That's the idea of the passage. The body of Christ is to help one another finish the race. Sometimes it's the weak helping the weak. Sometimes it's the strong helping the lame. But eyes together on the finish line, we are to continue running together. One person called this the duty of mutual help. And I think sometimes in America, we have such an individualized perspective. It's a very American thing to be self-sufficient and to have an individualized, self-sufficient perspective on the world around us. This idea of interdependency is really hard for us. It's not a cultural reality that we tend to live with as Americans. And especially, as we even say in our membership language, in the culture of rugged individualism of Southern Oregon, that's even more pronounced in our our little subculture within the larger culture of individualism. But we need each other. And the author of Hebrews has been saying that all along. We go back to chapter 3, verse 13. He told us to exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He said in chapter 4, verse 1, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Chapter 4, verse 11, the author tells us, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Chapter 6, verse 11, we desire that each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope to the end. Chapter 10, verse 25, do not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, the author has been calling the church to this, this communal one anotherisms from the very beginning of the book. The goal is not just to run and finish the race. The goal is to run the race and finish together. I love what Kent Hughes says about this. He says, The strong among us hold up the drooping hands and the weak knees of those that are weary. Who we do so by our presence, our prayers, by our acts of mercy. Those in the race who are strong are obligated to make straight paths for the feet of those who are weak. And when we, those of us who are blessed enough in this season of life to be in a place of spiritual strength, when we model an honest and sincere pursuit of Christ, 
when we model a singular devotion to Jesus, when in humility in our spiritual lives we exemplify a God-glorifying lifestyle, this is one of the primary ways that we make straight the path for those who are weak. Think of what the Apostle Paul says multiple times in multiple letters. Follow me, he says, as I follow Jesus. He was making straight paths for those he was running with. And then the author, he gives a strong practical application for how it is we do that. You know, but I was, I was having a conversation with a friend this week, and, and we were talking about the Christian life, the ups and the downs and the struggles of the Christian life, and, and he was meditating on last week's text and on last week's teaching, and the first point of last week's sermon was that we, our, our weak knees are strengthened when we come to the reality that others have run and faithfully finished the race. That's just the call for community. When we're running together and we, those of us who are blessed enough to be in a season of strength, when we run in strength, it is one of the primary ways we make a straight path for those around us. The Christian race is communal. It's a team sport. And so how do we do it? How, how do we ensure that the race is in fact finished by, by our brothers and sisters in Christ? How do we ensure that we and our brothers and sisters finish in faithfulness? And that's really the three things I want to share with you that, that I'm going to pull out of this passage. Three very practical things. Firstly, we see as we run together, we are to, number one, pursue peace and holiness. As we run together, we are to pursue peace and holiness. That's based on verse 14. Look at that, look at that verse. The author says, Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Strive, the author says, for peace in your personal life with everyone and Strive in your personal life for holiness. And then he adds this very stark warning. Remember, this is a warning passage. He says, strive for peace and holiness. Without it, you will not see the Lord. In other words, if you fail to strive for peace and holiness, you will risk missing out on heaven. And it's this, this word, this, this word, this striving word, it's the opposite of passivity. It's, it's to strive actively. It's to work towards something. It's a uniquely aggressive word. Other times we see this word being used in the New Testament, it usually is referring to, like, to chase after one's enemies. It, it usually means to persecute. The picture the author is painting is a very drastic picture, saying, for those of you in the body of Christ, as you are running this race, you are to, to chase after peace. You're to chase after it aggressively. You're to pursue it with everything that you have. And so what does it look like? What does it look like for you and for me within the body to chase after peace or to pursue peace or to seek after peace? In verse 11 of chapter 12, the author, as he was talking about discipline, he said, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And we learned a couple weeks ago that that God's goal for our life is peace. He's for our peace. And so those of us that seek to for God are to aggressively pursue it. We're to pursue peace, yes, with those who are outside the faith, but I think primarily the thrust here is a pursuit of peace within the body of Christ, among the one another's. And this is something we see in other parts of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, he speaks quite often about the pursuit of peace within the church. As he was writing to the, the church in Ephesus, he said in Ephesians 4, 3, he implores the Ephesian believers to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In his letter to the Romans, Paul says in chapter 12, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. In verse 14, or chapter 14 of Romans, Paul says, if, 
So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. And Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, he said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Being a peacemaker means pursuing peace, striving after peace. One of, the, one of the really great blessings we, we've had as a staff over the last month or so is in our congregation, there's a gentleman named uh, Dane Barron. Many of you probably know Dane. He's a trained mediator, and he understands the peacemaking way, and he he's actually does that, and he does mediation in all sorts of contexts. We've invited him to come to our staff meetings, and over the last several weeks, uh, on and off, a couple weeks he's been here, and then he's been gone for a couple weeks, but he's taking our staff through a very basic training of what it looks like for us to strive after peace and to facilitate peacemaking within the body of Christ. And so the question for us then, if this is what the, the, what the author of Hebrews is calling us to, and as I was praying for our congregation last night and again this morning, I was praying that, in, that, that, that God would give you a vision of what it looks like for you to pursue peace right now. As I ask you this question, is there a relationship in your life today that is not at peace? Is there a relationship in your life today that is not at peace that God may be bringing conviction into your life right now? And if you're honest, you're like, I've been passive about that, about that disagreement or about that frustration or about that broken friendship or that broken relationship. Is there a relationship in your life within the body of Christ right now that God is calling you, empowered by his spirit, to go and pursue reconciliation? I ask you to, to consider those names, to write them down. And honestly... Don't let the sun go down on that. The author also calls us to strive for holiness in verse 14. What does that mean? That word for holiness here in the Greek, it's what you would expect. It's, it, it involves the idea of consecration and purification and sanctification. I read this week that seeking holiness is the opposite of falling away. If the author has been warning the audience, this original audience, don't turn away, persevere in the faith, keep pursuing Jesus, the opposite of that is pursuing holiness. It's running after Jesus. It's, it's, it's pursuing sanctification, consecration. It's pursuing purification for the glory of God. It's not optional for the life of the believer. For apart from it, the author says, no one will see the Lord. Seeking the Lord is the opposite of falling away. One author puts it this way. He said, holiness should not be understood in terms of sinlessness, but describes those who continue to seek and pursue the Lord. I think of what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter, chapter 1. He says, he who called you is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct, since as it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So this call to holiness, it's not optional, and holiness is not possible apart from Christ. In chapter 10 of Hebrews, verse 14, the author says that Jesus, by one sacrifice, made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And so here's, here's what, here's what we've got to wrap our mind around here. You and I are holy only because Christ is holy, and he makes us holy. And so in order to strive for holiness, we strive for Christ who is holiness. Did you hear that? Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. Remember Esau. His strivings were not for holiness, nor for peace. The strivings of Esau were self-serving. And he ended up trading his soul, trading his future for a bowl full of soup. The author is warning us, not, don't trade your soul. Don't trade your future. Instead, run this race together. Church, let's run this race together. Let's pursue peace and holiness. Look at me at verse 15. 
The author continues, he says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Another way to say this, see to it, is to say watch over one another. The author is saying watch over one another. This is a picture of believers continuing to care for one another. So here's the second thing I want you to write down. The author says run together, and the second point of the sermon is prevent gracelessness and bitterness. As we run together, we prevent gracelessness and bitterness. So how else do we run together? How else do we help those we run with to finish in faithfulness? Well, we see to it, according to the author here, that those around you, those in the body, that they obtain the grace of God. We see to it that within the body of Christ, within this family, that no root of bitterness rises up. No root of bitterness is allowed to exist and contaminate and be a cancer that rips apart the community. The author says, as one who is striving for peace and holiness in your lives, be on the lookout for other believers who need encouragement, instruction, rebuke, or help in their journey toward God. Again, this is a warning passage. See to it. Watch over your brothers and sisters in Christ. Exercise oversight so that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and so causing many to become defiled. And so, in my outline, I have prevent gracelessness and bitterness. So what, is this, what does this gracelessness word really mean? What does it mean to fail to obtain the grace of God? We, we can have no need that outstrips grace, I read this week. And we never will. Even if we fall into deep sin, greater grace is still available. It's amazing grace, in fact. The Apostle Paul in Romans 5, he tells us that where sin increased, grace increased all the more. One author says this, For daily need there is daily grace. For sudden need there is sudden grace. For overwhelming need there is overwhelming grace. Grace is, is, the, is, the, the, is the substance of the Christian life. What a tragedy for us to miss out on such grace. That's why the author says, See to it. See to it, church, that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. There's a warning here that that it's possible for men and women who are in the church to fall behind. It's possible for men and women to not keep pace with the movement of divine grace. It's possible that men and women will abandon grace and cease their progress in their life in Christ. And so what does failing to obtain the grace of God look like? I appreciate what Kent Hughes Help me to see this week. He provides three pictures of what failing to obtain the grace of God might look like in the life of the Christian. Listen to these three things. Number one, lack of confession. Lack of confession starves the Christian of the experience of grace. If God's grace can be pictured as this massive, eternal picture of overwhelming grace that he has positioned to pour over your life and my life, this, 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 this incredible, amazing grace, if this is being positioned to be poured over us, lack of confession, in effect, places a hand against the tilted pitcher of grace with tragic power that omnipotence refuses to overcome. Lack of confession is one of the ways that we fail to obtain the grace of God. The other one would be self-imposed famine for God's word. Just choosing to not engage with the word of God. Think of what Jesus said in Matthew 4 as the enemy was trying to tempt him to turn these stones into loaves of bread. Jesus quotes 
Deuteronomy 8.3, and he says back to Satan, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Those in the body of Christ who do not read or meditate on God's word, as one author says, are self-condemned to a state of spiritual anorexia. What a blessing that we have the word of God, the, 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 the word of God which feeds us. And this, the third way in which the... Kent Hughes helped me to see ways in which we may miss out on the grace of God, not just lack of confession, not just spiritually or self-imposed famine of God's word, but the third way is spiritual isolation. It's trying to do this life alone. It's, it's holding on to the, the, the conviction of individualism and refusing to be engaged with others. The Apostle Paul's prayer for spiritual strength over the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 4, he, he says in part, to this church, you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. And so the Apostle Paul is praying to this church, God, I just pray that your eyes will be opened to the, just to the, the eternal nature of the love of God, the, the breadth, the length, the height, the depth of God's love. Did you hear how he, he said we experienced that? You may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. So the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of God's love is best comprehended in the context of Christian community. We learn it from one another. I had a friend recently I was having lunch with and, uh, an old pastor friend of mine who mentored me years ago and he just sort of asked me a question that sort of caused me to pause. We were having lunch in Ashland, and he said, hey, Paul, how do you hear from God? I thought, hmm, that's a good question. How do I hear from God? Do I hear an audible voice? And, and, I, and, I, and I thought about it, and I was like, well, the, I mean, the Bible is the living word of God. I, I hear from God through, through, the, through the scriptures. But then as I thought about it more, I thought, yeah, that's very true. I do hear from God. I, I'm familiar with his voice. His voice is given to me through the word, and I hear from God through his word. But I thought about it very practically. What are those moments in my life, and, and maybe you can identify with this, and those, what are those moments in my life where, like, um, I just, like, whoa, I had a moment, like, I just heard from God. And maybe it wasn't an audible voice, but it was the impression of God's voice on my heart, uh, uh, the call to do something, to confess something, to go somewhere, to say something, to, 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 to be obedient in a certain way. And I think of almost every time one of those moments has happened in my life, it's been in the context of Christian community. It's been me and brothers and sisters in Christ, whether it's my wife or my children, my coworkers or my friends, studying the Word of God. And as we sit around the Word of God and we're, and we're feeding on the words of God and as we're discussing the, the Word of God, it's usually been through the context and the wise observation of a brother or sister in Christ where I've just suddenly went, whoa, I just heard from God. That's the picture here. It's, it's us comprehending the love of God in the context of Christian community. The capacity to understand God's Word and experience his grace is vitally linked to our participation in the church with all the saints. This is so vital that we do life together as followers of Jesus. So we see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. It's a plural commandment. It's done in community. Every believer's responsibility is to make sure no one misses out on the grace of God. In, in fact, if you look at that word, see to it, it's the Greek word episkopos, or episkopo, which, which means to, to look upon, to inspect, to oversee, to look after, to care for. And it's interesting, because that word only appears twice in the New Testament, here and then, and then a second time in 1 Peter. 
And it's where we get the word bishop. And in, and in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter's writing about the responsibilities of elders in the church. And he says, I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, that's the word, episcopo, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. The idea here that the author uses this word, when, it, when he's using that word, episcopo, when, he, when he's saying, see to it, see to it, it's to watch over, it's a, it's a we're, we're, to, we're in a certain sense to be like bishops, seeing to it that no one within the community succumbs to gracelessness. We're, we're called to the, to, 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 as one author says, we're called to some, some sort of spiritual meddling in one another's lives. We're to watch closely our brothers and sisters to ensure that they're not falling into gracelessness, that they're not, that they're not failing to obtain the grace of God. We are to watch over one another. We're to, we're to both also receive loving care when a brother or sister approaches us who's concerned for our souls. This all is just, just giving us this idea of running the race together. We are to run and finish this race together. And, and we're also to, to watch out or to, or to prevent bitterness. And that's mentioned right here in our text as well. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. What is what is this bitterness? The ESV Study Bible says the author warns against bitterness. And what he's talking about here is a bitter and resentful person. And this person is like a contagious poison, poison spreading resentment to others. And the author says that a lack of godly oversight, a lack of tending to the community, will result in a bitter root that will produce terrible Consequences, And he's drawing from this quotation out of the book of Deuteronomy. Chapter 29, verses 18 and 19. Here's what Deuteronomy instructs. Beware, lest there be among you a man or a woman or a clan or a tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and to serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be any among you, lest there be... Among you, a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of his sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart and says, I shall be safe though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. So the, the bitter and poisonous root refers to those who abandon the Lord and worship other gods. This is a great fear of the author as he's writing to this church. And the reason of his great warnings is he worries that the readers will abandon the Lord. He warns them. And the implication for us today is that churches have to be alert for the reality that there are those who want to, who want to come in among us in the body of Christ and they want to bear poisonous and bitter fruit. And, and, and if you've been around church for any length of time, you know that that's the case. It's a cancer and it can spread we have to see to it that this kind of destructive root takes, this kind of destructive seed takes no root. And chances are, in the course of your life, you've been around bitter people. Perhaps you yourself have gone through seasons of life where you wrestled with bitterness. And you know what it does to the soul of a person. 
And if bitterness is happening within the soul of a person, when that seed begins to spread, it can create corruption and bitterness within the community. Nothing is a cancer to authentic community quite like bitterness. And and so to, to think about this in terms of the broader context, to choose bitterness, to choose resentment, to choose vengeance, it's... It's trading the promises of God for, you know what, you know how it is. How many times have you been angry or, or, or jealous or, or, ang- or just frustrated with someone and in a moment of weakness, you allow that to take root in your heart and even if you're in an argument with someone and you say the most perfect comeback, you, you weaponize your words and in the most perfect way, you say that thing that cuts them to the heart because they hurt you or you, they, you perceive that they hurt you. And for like a few moments when you, have those, when you have those sorts of gotcha moments, it feels good for about a minute or so. But then as soon as like the dust settles, you realize like, ugh, I was so bad I could take that back. I hate what that just did. I hate what damage that did to relationship. And the idea here is that we, we can choose that in the body of Christ and it creates a cancer that destroys community. And in so doing, you're trading your future for a bowl of soup. It's, a, it's, a, it's momentarily satisfying to, to, to give in to the, the pressures of bitterness or anger or resentment, but it kills you. So the author warns his congregation, don't, don't do that. In fact, watch out over one another. Be bishops in one another's lives. That does not happen within the body of Christ, that you don't trade your future for a bowl of soup. Instead, run together. Run together, lock arms with one another, pursue peace and holiness, prevent gracelessness and bitterness. And lastly, as we run together, he says that we are to, we are to protect against immoral and unholy cravings, verses 16 and 17. Lastly, as we run together, we are to protect against immoral and unholy cravings. So what are the immoral and unholy cravings that he's talking about? Well, I think we could probably speculate. I think of what he said in the first verse of the chapter. These immoral and unholy cravings, these are, these, this is every weight that clings so closely. It's every weight and sin which t- clings so closely. We're told by the author to lay those things aside. We have to remember this is a warning passage. The author is warning his audience. He's warning them against Specifically, sexual immorality and unholiness. And again, we go back to Esau as this great example of what not to be. He is the foil for the the faithful saints mentioned in chapter 11. Esau is the exact opposite of those 16 saints who finished the race in faithfulness. And he's meant to be positioned as the exact opposite. There's a reason why the author uses him here. He's in direct contrast to those in the hall of faith. He's propped up as a stark warning to the audience. Esau is the example of immorality and unholiness. His cravings got in the way of his holiness. And so what the author is saying is it's possible to look at those saints who's gone before you, and the race is runnable and finishable in faithfulness. You can do that. That's possible, which is very encouraging. But he's also saying, guess what? It's also possible with a bitter heart, with a hard heart, with a heart that refuses holiness and grace and peace, it's also possible to, to finish outside of the grace of God. It's also possible to fail at running this race. Both are possible. He gave us 16 examples of faithfulness in in, in chapter 11. He gives us one example of faithlessness here in Esau in chapter 12. But he no doubt has given us an example to warn us, you can fail to miss out on the promises of God if you choose to run in faithlessness. What did Esau do? As we said a few moments ago, 
In a moment of discomfort, he rejected his inheritance for a bowl of soup. He eventually realized he screwed up, but it was too late. Obviously, there's much more to unpack about the life of Esau, but most generically, that's what he did. He traded his inheritance for, his inheritance for a cup of soup. He chose immorality and unholiness. He, he chose to turn his back on peace and holiness and the grace of God for this momentary pleasure. As one author says, Esau was completely earthbound. All his thoughts are on what he could touch and taste and see. Instant gratification was his rule of thumb. And he was void of spiritual values. He was godless. Thomas Schreiner says, God did not take Esau's blessing from him, but Esau traded it away, and God let him bear the consequence of his actions. Now again, this audience knew so, this story was, they, they would have known Esau's story like the back of their hand, and it serves as a vital lesson for them as they face the temptation to turn away from Jesus, as we've covered at nauseum throughout this, this teaching, throughout this, this, this study of Hebrews, we know that they were tempted to turn away. They were facing great discomfort in a much bigger scale, sort of like Esau coming in with a, with a famished belly. What good is my promise if I can't make it through the moment? The temptation for the original audience facing persecution is for them to say something very similar and turn away. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this passage in the message. Listen to how he paraphrases verses 16 and 17. He says, watch out, church, for the Esau syndrome. Trading away God's lifelong gift in order to satisfy a short-term appetite. You well know how Esau later regretted that impulsive act and wanted God's blessing, but by then it was too late. Tears or no tears. So the author is telling them Esau gave up the promise in order to ease physical discomfort. Therefore, church, them, then, us today, do not consider giving up the promise in order to ease your social discomfort. Don't fall in the trap. Don't trade your future for a bowl of soup. You've been given something precious and beautiful and eternal in the gospel. You must not forsake it for the comforts or for the joys of this present age. It was too late for Esau, but it's not too late for us. And he throws that word repent in at the very last. It's too late for Esau to repent, but it's not too late for us. So we're invited. If we find ourselves wandering, if we find ourselves on the fringes, we're invited to repent of unholiness while there's still a chance. Esau found no chance to repent. But we have the chance to call the author. The call of the author for us today is that very thing. That word repent, it means change of mind that manifests in a total reversal. You know what repent means. You've seen it modeled, I'm sure. It's a 180. It's facing sin. It's turning our back on God. It's pursuing the things of this world. And uh, upon the conviction of the Holy Spirit, it's turning our back on the very thing that is pulling us away from God. It's turning our face to Jesus and journeying back toward him. That's the picture of repentance. I think of what Paul writes in Ephesians, or rather in Romans 12, this idea of a change of mind, this picture of, of God renewing our minds. And then this other author that I read this week was so convicting to me. He said, this passage is designed to awaken people to danger, not to make them give up hope. Warning is the counterpart of promise. Both pertain to the future. Warnings disturb people while promises encourage them. But together they serve the same end, which is encouraging people to preserve in faith, to persevere in faith. So any who is concerned for their own salvation... If you, if you feel a conviction in your heart about wanting to honor God and pursue Him, 
you have not followed on the steps of Esau. Rejection is reflected in a life of callousness that does not desire repentance or seek to turn from its rebellious ways. But if God is gracious enough to give you conviction of sin, then you have not followed in the steps of Esau. And so the question that we have to wrestle with today as we think about this final point of the sermon is, is what are those cravings in my life? What are those cravings that may get in the way? What are those cravings that are causing me to drift? What tempts me to divert my eyes from God? What is the bowl of soup that threatens my future in Christ? And then as we look to our left and to our right, we, we discern this within the context of community. So what is it? As you, as you examine your life, what, what, are those, what are those immoral and unholy cravings that may seek to distract you from the life that God has called you to, from the race he's placed before you? I mean, the author mentions sexual immorality, lust, I mean, millions, I mean, how many kingdoms have toppled because of that? Is it loneliness? Is it bitterness? Is it thirst for significance? Is it desire to escape? What is it? I wonder what it is. You know, if we were to, if we were to just have an opportunity to go for a long walk together or, or to sit down over a cup of coffee, and if the threat of, of insecurity and if all that was removed and you could just sort of lay bare the contents of your heart to a trusted brother or sister in Christ, I wonder what it is that you would share. One of the questions that when I, when I used to do a lot of hiring at a, at a former church, that I used to always ask is we got done doing all the interview process and we'd be sitting in a room as a hiring committee and we'd be analyzing the person we were going to hire. We'd ask the same question. If this person fails in ministry, what will be the reason? What is the craving in their life? What is the, what is the thing in their life that might get in the way of them becoming the person or leading in a way that, that would honor God? And I, and I just want to ask that question to you. In your life, if there is, to be forewarned is forearmed, what might be the craving in your life that might seek to undermine the race that God has called you to run? Identify it. Forewarned is forearmed. Share it. Ask for accountability. That we can run together. That we can run together and pursue peace and holiness. That we can prevent gracelessness and bitterness. And that we can perfect, perfect, protect against immoral and unholy cravings. So before I finish, I just, I just found myself this week thinking a lot about the dad. You know, I'm a dad, and I got kids that run track, and I identify. Isn't that funny? The older you get, you begin to identify with older people and stories. When I was younger, I would have identified with the runner, Derek. But now that I'm older, I identify more with the father, Jim. But I, th- I, th- I was thinking about that story of that Olympic runner kind of as a... As a is a metaphor for the spiritual life. And I, and I was thinking about Jim. And I thought, man, the resolve and the singular focus of that dad to push through those crowds of people, to push through security, to shove off everybody that tried to stop him from running to his son's aid. He got through all of it. He would be stopped at nothing. It reminded me of the picture that we have of the good shepherd who leaves the 99 to pursue the one. And I just thought about the resolve of this dad, the commitment of this dad to, 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 to shoulder the burden of his son to help him finish the race. And as I think of the story on a spiritual level, I, I very easily identify with the, with the son who blew his hamstring out. I identify with the weak, the, the, the wounded, the hobbled, the hurting. I understand what it's like to feel vulnerable and dependent. If you live this life for any length of time, no doubt you've got seasons in your life where you have been vulnerable and dependent on others. So you can probably, in a spiritual way, identify with Derek, this son who's laying on the track, clutching his hamstring, not sure if he's going to be able to finish the race. But I tell you what, as I thought about the race, I, I, I thought to myself, do I know what it's like to be like the father in a spiritual sense? 
Do I know what it's like to be this father, to, to see the, the hurting family member, to see a fellow sojourner who's down and out and struggling and hurting? Maybe because of the consequence of their own sinful choice, do I know what it's like to, to stop at nothing, to run to my brother or my sister at Christ, to push past whatever may seek to stop me, not giving myself excuses to let them flounder alone, but, but pushing through all difficulty to get by my brother or sister in Christ to, to help shoulder the burden that they're feeling? Have you ever experienced conviction to run to someone's side? To stop at nothing to help a brother or sister who's hurting? See, this is, this is, this is where the, the, as I've meditated on this passage and this, this call to run together, I, this is what really was convicting to me. Have, have I, I, I thought back like, to the, of the convictions that I've experienced in my Christian life, sometimes in the comfort and in the strength. Uh, the, when, when I'm in a season of plenty or a season of, of prosperity or when I'm experiencing great comfort in my Christian life, sometimes in the comfort of strength, I forget to look out for the weak. Can you identify with that? But we're called here to keep our eyes up. We're to watch out for one another. We're to look out. We're to see to it that people don't drift, that they don't get devoured, that they don't fall off. So I think about this great conviction to, to run to the weary friend who's broken on their face to place a hand on their weary shoulder, to shoulder their burdens, to bear them to the finish line, that they might keep pursuing Christ, that we might run together. And so, again, the third, the third question I want to ask you today is, who are those in your midst who may need your help? If you're, if you're fortunate enough today to be in a season of strength, who are those in your midst today who need help? Who are the ones that you can, as you survey the landscape of your life, whether it's your biological family or your spiritual family or your work family, who are those in your life who are struggling with spiritual doubt who need a helping hand on the shoulder? Who are those who are dealing with ongoing depression who need a friend to just sit with them in that place? Who are those in your life who are grieving crushing loss. They're not looking for answers. They're looking for someone to journey along with them. Who are those in your life who are trying to heal from the wounds of betrayal or who are overwhelmed with a lifetime of trauma? See, it's not hard for me to identify with the one who is lame. Life has a way of reminding us of our dependence on God and others. But the real, thr the real thrust of this text, at least for me, is this call to make straight paths for the feet of the lame, that they might finish the race and be healed. We are in a race together. Now, sometimes you're the one in need of help, and you need to be humble enough to receive it. Sometimes you're the one to offer help, and you need to stop at nothing to help. Either way, we run together. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this passage. And, and God, as we, as we settle into this text today, and even next week as we continue with this warning passage, and sometimes these warning texts can be hard for us, God. And so, God, I pray that as we meditate on, on what we've learned today, God, as we, as we think about what it means for us to run together this race that you have set before us, God, as, as we think about what it means for us to pursue peace and holiness, to, to prevent gracelessness and bitterness, to protect against immorality and unholy cravings, God, I pray. God, I pray that you would give us, God, just clarity and conviction and an understanding of what that means within the body of Christ for us to to run this race together, God, to, to realize that we are not in an individual sport, but we're in a team sport. God, would you give us, God, would you give us uh, eyes to, to, to see those in our midst, God, who need a helping hand in this spiritual journey, who need a, a patient friend, a present friend who will come to their aid and 
journey alongside them and shoulder the burden. God, for those of us here today who, who are, are, are the ones that are wounded and broken and we're on the, the track and we are just looking for help and we're not sure if we're going to be able to finish, God, would you, God, would you give us humility to receive help when it comes our way, God? I pray that, that you would be at work in the body here, God, that you'd be at work in our midst, that, that we as a body of believers would, God, would not live individualized, isolated lives. I pray, God, this has to be a move of your spirit. We can't program this. I can't, we can't, we can't make an event at Heritage Christian Fellowship to make us a loving, interdependent body of believers that run together. This is a work of your spirit as we sit under the teaching of your word. God, would you, God, would you move in us today to think outside of ourselves, to, to look around, to, God, to lean into authentic and real Christian community. God, would you God, would you give us insight into our own souls that we would be guarded against those very things that we, would, that we would turn to instead of you, God. May we never sell our soul for a bowl of soup. Grow us as a body. Heal us as a body. Help us run this race together for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.